arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Demons, the dark side. I could not let the river of fate steamroll toward the end without commenting on Marco St. Germain's evil. Especially a few years out from when I initially wrote the book, I sense that evil that Marco possesses and will not give up. It transcends time, and constantly thwarts attempts to destroy it. If there was ever a case for demons, Marco St. Germain is it. He ratchets up the pressure as December 20th and Greg's accident approaches. The action between Marco, Caroline, Greg, and Ben accelerates like a ping pong ball, flying back and forth. As with most evil, one must wonder if it can be defeated and will it ever end. Back to December 1968 in the race to stop the accident against the evil force called Marco St. Germain. The River of Fate by Robert P. Fitton Chapter 20 Caroline, although ill at ease at age 32 about attending a high school dance with Greg, found the idea of spending the night with him both perplexing and intriguing. Their bedroom back in East Greenwich with its four-poster bed and high Victorian ceiling had been a perfect setting to make love by candlelight as the snow swirled outside the window. When they first made love in his condo outside Chicago, her nervousness showed, but now the young kid approached the older woman. They arrived to a dimly lit high school gym packed with students dancing and some lingering along the folded-up bleachers. The loud band, strung on bass, blasted the long-haired singer's rambling song through two black amplifiers on a makeshift stage with oscillating red lights. These younger kids made her feel as if she were indeed a chaperone. Greg said something to a few of his friends and returned with a soda from the lobby machine. In the midst of blaring music, she longed to have him alone. What do you think of the band? They're from Philadelphia. I think they opened for the Turtles last summer. You don't say, she asked as she sipped on the Coke. He smiled. You know, happy together. Oh, I just talked to the coach. They want me to fly out there beginning of the year. I get to see the Rose Parade and the Rose Bowl. You're kidding. Nope. A thin girl with a tight red sweater and a short white skirt grabbed Greg's arm. Greg, let's dance. Greg, his mouth open, turned to her. I'm here with a date, Joni. Oh, come on, she said, pulling his arm. Oh, while you dance with Grandma Moses here? Caroline was a little taken back as Joni drifted back into, into the dance. He took her hand and led her onto the dance floor. The band cranked out a distorted version of the Beatles' Hey Jude. Then he slipped his arm around her and put her head on his shoulder. She closed her eyes and felt his warmth as they swayed toward the stage. Back 25 years in time, she held her deceased husband, young and alive, on a brisk autumn night in Reedsville, Pennsylvania. A short man with a sour expression on his greasy face placed his hand on Greg's shoulder. The blonde-haired Joni, 15 feet away, watched with her friends. Greg reacted quickly. Mr. Beasel, Beasel faced Caroline. I was told that you had brought some illegal alcohol into this dance for Greg. I don't need outsiders coming in here and bringing alcohol to our students. Greg pointed at Joni. She's making it up. Greg pressed his lips and guided Caroline away from Beasel. The girls near Joni said nothing as he passed. Caroline looked over her shoulders as a few other girls blasted Joni. Then they entered the lobby and she turned to Greg. Greg, I'm sorry. My presence here is getting people all upset. He shook his head and then looked outside. In the parking lot, the bald-headed Miskinis jovially spoke with a group of teachers and locals. Greg held their shoulders. I'll be right back. Miskinis headed toward the parking lot as Greg careened through the doors. He caught Miskinis at the curb and began waving his arms. Miskinis reacted with equal emotion. Caroline wandered along the gym doors and toward the empty corridor. She reached the wire mesh doors. The corridor lockers blended into the darkness ahead. 
When she turned, Marco St. Germain leaned against an adjoining corridor wall. He smiled and spoke with the same self-confident, cocky attitude. Well, if it isn't the lovely lady. Oh, Jesus God. No, not Jesus God. He gritted his teeth as he spoke. You and your uncle had me behind bars for three weeks, lovely lady. She veered back toward the gym lobby, but he followed her and clamped his hands around her arm. Get away from me! His eyelids hung heavy and his eyes were bloodshot. She turned from his pungent breath. You waiting for Prince Charming? We know all about you, lovely lady. It wasn't the old man that had you. It was the young stud. Shut up. She looked back toward the gym doors as he stepped closer. They can put me in the slammer, lovely lady, and they can land a few punches, but I'm still here, aren't I? And I'll get back at that old man. You can count on it. Screw you. She visualized Ben's newly purchased Remington. Marco grabbed her arm and reeled her against his leather coat. Come on, lovely lady. Let's go inside and dance. You're nice and warm, baby. She struggled, but then he shoved her against the lockers. What the hell did I ever do to you? He pulled her against him. You want it, and you know it. You don't learn, Marco. You keep making the same mistakes over and over. The only thing I've learned in life is how to get even, lovely lady. My day will come for both you and the old man. If you're putting out for Greg, you can put out for me. She spit in his face again. He recoiled like a trampled snake and wiped his cheeks. His eyes flared and he growled as he yanked her back again. Then he clenched his hairy fist. Bad move, lovely lady. Bad move. Greg burst through the outside doors. His face contorted as he sprinted and pulled Marco back by the shoulder. Then he smacked the smaller Marco high on the cheekbone, knocking him across the corridor floor. What the hell do you think you're doing, St. Germain? For at least a half a minute, Marco did not even move. He gradually recovered and staggered along the lockers. While the cat's away, Greg... Greg, his face crimson, pointed his finger at him. You stay the hell away from her. Tough talk, Greg. You're in love now, is that it? You keep your hands off her. He and Caroline started back toward the lobby, but Marco called out from behind. You know better than to talk to me like that, old friend. Caroline looked over her shoulder as Marco advanced with an open switchblade. Greg pushed her back and swung his foot into Marco's wrist. The blade flew under a classroom door. Greg charged and viciously swung his fists. He pummeled Marco against the doors. With the crack of each successive blow, Marco weakened and finally fell motionless onto the floor. Greg leaped on top of him. By now, students poured out of the gym. At least a half a dozen of Greg's friends finally extricated him from Marco and dragged him back toward the lobby. Several teachers escorted them back to the lobby as uniformed policemen rushed in from outside. Caroline took his arm and steered him by the display case. His scraped knuckles oozed blood. I'm so sorry, Greg. Don't be. Let's get out of here. Cops ran by them and down the corridor. He took her hand and picked up both coats from the side closet. As they neared the outside doors, the cops quickly stopped him. Where is he? Asked the older cop with gray sideburns. Greg turned. Marco? Right. He was by the first corridor door, volunteered Caroline. Nobody there, said the cop. Then he must have gone back in the school, said Greg. He came at me with a switchblade. It spun under one of the classroom doors. Harry, go back to the cruiser and call Sergeant Brewer. We need backup before this clown gets outside. He turned, drew his gun, and ran down the corridor. Caroline squeezed Greg's arm. He's evil. He's evil. Evil, nothing will stop him, Greg. Greg pulled Caroline through the crowd. They picked up speed outside and raced through the cold air to his shiny red car. He opened the Super Sports passenger side door and helped her inside. He started the car and gazed back to the gym through the mirror as he drove toward the high school hill. Thank you, she said. It seemed embarrassed by what he had done. As he turned down the hill, he flipped the heater fan and warmed the cold vinyl seats. She moved closer as he started down through Reedsville and slowly moved his arm around her. He deserved it. I would say that's an accurate statement. They approached his parents' apartment a few minutes later. He brought the Supersport around the back and shut off the engine. 
His breath swirled in the night air as he backpedaled around the hood and opened her door. Again he took her hand, and she put her arm around him, and they moved across the hardened dirt driveway to the stairway's aluminum storm door. Once upstairs, he threw his suede coat onto the kitchen chair. As she unbuttoned her own coat, he faced her, slid her hands around her thick cable sweater, and kissed her. He said nothing, taking her face in his hands and kissing her again. She dropped her coat, and he swept her up in his arms, still kissing her as he carried her to the bedroom. Wound up and unstoppable, he pulled her sweater over her head, holding her in his grasp and almost smothering her lips as he pushed his body over her. She had only dreamed about being with him again, and as they shed their clothes skin to skin, she now rolled on top of him. She saw not her dead husband, but the young boy enchanted by the older woman naked above him. His muscular frame tightened as she enveloped him, kissing him wildly, and he moved his hands all over her body. She had him back now, and would refuse him nothing as they locked together into the night. Through the long hours, she held him in the dim light, listening to him breathe as she counted his heartbeats. He had a sweet smell, perhaps from the shower. She ran her fingers tenderly over his soft hair. A car would pass in the night, and the luminous orange alarm clock dial inched through precarious minutes she thought she would never have again. She stared at his chest, moving rhythmically in the dim light, not fully understanding her own good fortune, but knowing unless the old woman ripped her away from 1968, she would never leave Greg. But as she draped her arm around his chest and closed her eyes, she feared her time here would slip away. At Binghamton's restaurant, despite the elation of the night before, Caroline grew ever concerned about losing Greg. She moved the conversation as they ate breakfast at one of the window booths toward the future, but Greg's attention's being drifted. The cops never found Marco. Well, they'd better. He'll kill somebody. It's from the wrong side of the tracks, that's for sure. Greg, listen to me. In case something happens, please listen. He lackadaisically drank his orange juice. June 15th, 1993. What? If we get separated... Meet me on June 15th, 1993. 1993? I'll be in my 40s, Lina. I can't think that far ahead. Just remember the date. June 15th, 1993. Okay, June 15th, 1993. He said, pointing at his temple. There, it's remembered. He pretended to salute her and then talked about the scouts and his promising college career. She looked through the clear window glass to Main Street as he spoke. The workers strung Christmas lights between the brick buildings on Main Street, just as he had mentioned in Chicago. She visualized the aging Marco, beady-eyed and balding, running away after shooting Greg on South Michigan Avenue. This 1968 Christmas season offered the hope of having Greg back for good. The accident loomed less than a month away, Yet she and Ben had not perfected a plan to lure Greg away from the school. By playing in that game on December 20th, Greg faced a fractured life after a career-ruining injury. The River of Fate by Robert P. Fitton Chapter 21 the cold air punched its way into Muldoon's every time the door opened, followed by Mickey barking about heating the outdoors. Caroline hurled a feather dart into Muldoon's tournament dartboard, nearly missing the bullseye. I'm worried, Ben. A camel hung from the corner of his mouth. What are you worried about? I'm down here every night, and I can't throw like that. Give him another beer, and his vision will improve, said Mickey, cupping his hand from the bar. Ben waved his hand through the air and made a twisted face as he turned back to Caroline. You have nothing to worry about. St. Germain has disappeared off the face of the earth ever since Greg beat the crap out of him. That's more than the Stadies or Mickey's boys from Philly could do. No, that's not it, Ben. That's not what's worrying me. She pitched another dot through the smoke-filled air. This time she hit the outside rim of the dartboard. Then what is it? You and Greg are having the time of your lives. You see each other all the time. You've taken trips into the city. He loves you. 
And that guy, uh, Pedada Dada Pinata from UCLA, Piazza. Right, he's going to finalize the deal with Greg, so what's the problem here? She set down the other darts and leaned over the pool table. What kind of a plan do we have? I mean, we have six days left before the accident. What kind of plan do we have? I told you, it's simple. We just don't let him go to the game. We keep talking about keeping him away, Ben, but we haven't said how. And what about Marco? I still worry about Marco. Well, that's what this baby's for. Ben lifted his quilted vest, revealing a little black gun he kept in his shoulder strap. Jesus, God. She picked up the darts again, rapidly throwing them one by one. A couple of them hit the board, and the last one stuck in the brown paneling. That thing will get you into trouble. Mark my word. This is the best insurance policy I have against that son of a bitch. I wouldn't give a second thought to plugging him. She pushed her fingers through her long, dark hair. How do we get Greg away from the school, Ben? Just tell me. Maybe we just tell him the truth. You said he's aware that you know things about the future. She stormed around the pool table to retrieve the embedded darts, but then turned quickly. Ben, you've become so much a part of this time, you've lost sight of why we're here. You'll just tell him everything. Let him be aware of the possibilities. Well, I don't know about that. As she ripped out each individual dart, Mickey called from behind the bar, and they both turned as he held up his thumbs. It's ready, Ben. The boy spiffed it all up. Thanks, Mick. Ben draped Caroline's coat over her shoulders and then took her by the arm. He pushed open the heavy outside door. Parked in the adjacent lot, a powder blue sedan shined in the low winter light. She turned, but Ben spoke first. Galaxy 500, not a super sport, but it'll get us where we want to go. Then he reached into his pocket and handed her a phony license. You guys are incredible. Mickey knows these people who, you know, they duplicate. Never mind, I don't want to know. Good. She smiled and hugged him. Hey, I'm sorry I blew up at you inside, Ben. Tell Greg, Caroline, tell him slowly about the future. All he has to do is avoid the accident. That's it. She looked across the afternoon shadows, deepening toward Main Street. Greg should be here any minute. He was supposed to drive me over to the park near the river. Nope, not going to happen. You're meeting him at the park, in your usual parking lot. It's all arranged, Caroline. Me? I'm meeting him? Ben, it's been months since I've driven. You mean in that car? Yep. Ben put his hand behind her back and they moved across the dirt lot and he opened the door for her. The silver keys dangled next to the steering column. Enjoy the park. It's supposed to be a beautiful day, but cold. I don't know what to say. Well, how about, you're great, Ben. He threw his cigarette toward the storm drain. I have to talk to some people. St. Germain's uncle is making trouble about my gambling. I knew it, Ben. You've pushed your luck. Ben shook his head. No, we have a lawyer coming down from Harrisburg. We'll put a stop to this just before it begins. Just remember what I said. Tell Greg everything. He'll understand, and we'll stop the accident. The atypically cold and sunny weather would not prevent a special time with Greg. Still unsure behind the wheel, she waved at Ben and fumbled for the directional. She finally took a wide turn near Binghamton's. Somebody blew a horn at her. Waiting for the heat to come up, she veered away from the interstate bridge spanning the Emmitsburg River and steered the Ford up the state highway ramp. As she moved down the highway, the brown river moved swiftly to her left, and she approached a sign for the park. As the ground leveled out a few miles ahead, the brilliant autumn sun lighted the river as it wound between the hills and the bare trees. Behind the stone wall and woods to her right, the park spread into the hills. She signaled and steered between two stone entrance pillars. Several small lakes were scattered throughout the acreage, and narrow paved roads rolled over the forested hills. With both hands gripped on the wheel, she brought the car up a small hill near a stone lookout tower, and then she signaled into a dirt parking lot. Greg sat on his waxed and shiny red car, wearing jeans and a brown leather coat, and as he waved, she stirred up the dirt. He hopped from the car and jogged over to her window, just as she shut off the engine. Hey, so this is it, huh? She rolled down the window and the freezing air entered the car. He leaned in and kissed her. He wore that same cologne. You want to race, big boy? Greg smiled, glancing at his own car, and then he opened her door. 
But as she stepped out and saw his huge frame in the sunlight, the accident again came into mind. She put on some acrylic gloves with little green flowers knitted on the surface, and Greg held her hand along the knoll, overlooking the lake's thin ice. One week from today, Greg would be irreparably injured in a basketball game if she didn't do something about it. He led her down the hill and they climbed onto a jutting rock where they often sat. She could see him bubbling over with excitement. The air fogged from his mouth as he spoke. Lina, Piazza is coming to Reedsville with the agreement, if not this week, then next week. Really? She held him tight and looked into his eyes, but her mind floated back to the Revere Gym and Friday's upcoming game. The deal is cinched, Lina. California, here I come. Everything you always wanted, Greg. I almost don't even want to play any more games. He rested his arms on his prop knees as he peered over the glazed lake. Well, that's an option. Then you'd be in top shape for college. No, no, I'm only kidding. I can't let the guys down. I can't let coach down. And what about everybody in town? Well, I agree. But some time off for a week or so wouldn't be a bad idea. In fact, it would be a great idea. Rest and relaxation. He turned toward her and softly touched her cheek. I missed you. It's only been a few days, but I've missed you too. I wish we had a place to go, alone, you know, like when Tom and Margaret went to New York. Maybe I'd get Ben to hang out at Muldoon's some afternoon. Or a night. He kissed her, but her lips were tense and she fidgeted with her hands. You all right, Lina? You cold? I'm okay. I have something for you. He reached in his coat pocket and took out a tiny white box. Caroline temporarily forgot about the accident as he opened it. A smooth pearl ring with diamond clusters sat snugly on green velvet inside the box. She laughed and raised her hands to her mouth. I don't believe you. Greg pinched the ring and slowly removed it from the mounting bracket. The sunbeams danced across the glistening diamond chips as he carefully placed it on her finger. She gently touched the satin textured pearl with her fingertips, but kept shaking her head. She wrapped her arms around his bulky coat. Ben's advice repeated in her thoughts as she hugged his tight body. Should she really tell him why she had come back? You've made me so very happy you have no idea. I've come back for you, don't you see? She gazed into his grayish eyes and he seemed to dismiss what she said. Come on, let's go over to the waterfalls. Across the lake, an old lady and some children fed the ducks along the road. She walked the wooded lake trail with him, but this time she had a ring on her finger. They were together again, joined in some odd and mysterious way. Near the clearing, she heard the falls, part of a man-made terrace spillway that flowed under the road and into the woods. She held his hand as they emerged and the sunlight sparkled across the cascading water. This is where she wanted to meet him if they ever were separated. They walked over a narrow bridge and leaned on the iron pipe railing overlooking the little falls. June 15, 1993. Greg said nothing for a long time as the water cascaded over the rocks. He stared at the ring and then toward the water before he spoke in an almost inaudible voice. The magical date you keep repeating. Well, this is where I want you to meet me. What do you mean you came back for me? I, I don't understand that. She debated whether telling Greg the truth would really prevent the accident, and she did not know what he would say next. Tom and Margaret used to bring me here when I was a kid to feed the ducks. Tom used to pretend he was one of the ducks and I'd feed him. I'll have to remind him of that. June 15, 1993. What's so special about that date? That's many years away, Greg. I know that. Well, what will the world be like then? Tomorrow never knows. Good line. Well, it's not mine. It was John Lennon's. Lennon was shot dead in December of 1980. Greg looked at her for the first time in minutes. Then he shook his head, his eyes moistened, and he looked sick. I said that line was appropriate because John Lennon was shot dead outside the Dakota in New York City near Central Park on December 8, 1980. Greg stared at her. That's not even funny. No, it's not. If I could stop that, I would, but I wasn't sent back here for that reason. You lost me, Lina. I don't even know what you're talking about. Vietnam will go on for another seven years, Greg. The United States will abandon South Vietnam. Right after that, the price of gasoline quadruples. You're talking crazy, Lina. After the Arab oil embargo, then everybody buys small Japanese cars. 
Even the Soviet Union will fall apart. Greg, I know the future because I'm from the future. I was sent back here for you. He put his hand on her shoulder. Listen, uh, why don't we go back to Muldoon's? We'll find Ben. We'll sit down and talk this thing through. This is some kind of joke, right? You don't understand, Greg. I came back here. I came back to prevent you from... This is crazy. Do you hear me? Crazy. She grasped the railing with both hands. You and I were married in the future. We lived in East Greenwich, Illinois. We went into Chicago in December of 1992 to listen to the symphony. See, this gypsy fortune teller in the restaurant told us you were going to die. And you did die that night, Greg. Marco St. Germain shot you. I lost you that night, Greg. She moved to hold him, but his rigid body showed a stark indifference. You and Marco started hanging around together because you were injured in a basketball game. You weren't able to play basketball anymore. Well, that's enough. So you think this is a funny little story, do you, Caroline? It's no story. You and Marco were out with some friends. He killed a hitchhiker. He was convicted because you testified against him. Don't you see that, Greg? No, I don't see. He escaped into the future and he stalked you. Save your stories, Caroline, because I really don't want to hear them. They're sick, really sick. He shook his head, released his grip on the rail, and sprinted off the bridge. No, Greg, please, please come back. He had already run past the falls and along the lake. He disappeared into the woods toward the parking lot. She collapsed on the bridge, knowing she had miscalculated. Now Greg, with justification, thought her either demented or trying to hurt him. On her knees, she put her head in her hands and sobbed for the longest time. She lifted her head toward the woods, but he was gone, and all that was left was the faint smell of English leather. She sat on the bridge for nearly an hour, drained as the sun dipped behind the spindly branches. Even with the gloves, her hands shook in the cold. She stared at the falls and then headed toward the woods alone. Everything had turned chaotic. Whatever the consequences of her revelation, she had lost him again. She sat in Ben's new car and looked at the ring, the pearl smooth and round. Greg had probably spent what little money he had saved to purchase that ring. Her hands continued to shake as she put the key in the ignition. A noise like a truck or a bus backfiring exploded, and a maroon car with white racing stripes jacked up in the rear rolled into the parking lot. She shifted quickly and drove in a wide arc toward the park road. Sunlight shot over her face as she raced frantically along the wooded road in the lake. But the maroon car was right behind her and closing in. White letters on the hood designated the car as a 442, and someone kept downshifting and then accelerating up to her rear bumper. She panicked and accelerated forward. So did the 442. Caroline approached 60 miles an hour on a road not designed for high speeds. She had trouble controlling the car as the 442 downshifted, the tires screeched, and the car bashed her rear bumper. She flew around a sharp turn, nearly losing control of her car, as several afternoon walkers fled into the woods, hiding and terrorizing in a car fit Marco St. Germain style. She checked the side mirror, but did not see the 442 as she ran the stop sign. Then the powerful car rocketed out from the woods, engine revving, and pulled alongside. Marco smirked from behind the wheel. He wore a black turtleneck and a cigarette was stuck in his mouth. He had a killer's glazed look as he sideswiped her car. She swerved to the right over the bumpy grass shoulder. No! Get away from me! She struggled to get back onto the pavement. Then he slammed her a second time. She lost control and careened into the woods about 50 yards away from the duck feeding area. She came to rest in a small thicket. Up ahead, near the pond, the 442 idled like a military tank surveying enemy territory. Caroline pounded the wheel, and at that very moment, Marco left a streak of rubber across the asphalt, scattering the ducks across the pond. She backed out and hesitantly drove onto the hard surface. She constantly checked the one-way road. Fearful, she pulled off the road near the waterfall and waited until sunset near the stone markers at the park exit. Night settled over the town lights ahead. After the car attack, she needed Greg more than ever. 
He must have viewed her as some crazed character whose demented personality resided like a polluted underground spring in her own subconscious. Friday loomed with no solution in place. She had to stop him from playing in that game or his life would be ruined. She sat up and started the car as a Dodge truck signaled at the entrance. The truck moved at an angle and blocked her path. Mickey Muldoon, in a red Paul Revere High School parker, leaped out of the cab with Ben's buddy Al. Caroline shoved open the car door. Mickey, what happened? Why are you here? Now don't panic, Caroline. Ben's been arrested. Gambling charges, said Al as Mickey hugged her. Listen, I got a call into Myron Sylvester. Who? She asked as she broke into tears. Maybe it was because of the spat with Greg, or she feared the authorities would find out the truth about her and Ben. He's an attorney from New Jersey. He works with people in trouble. Who arrested my uncle? Mickey looked over at Al and then to her eyes. Vinny, Vinny St. Germain. Well, that figures. Well, let me tell you guys something. That creep Marco just chased me all over the park less than an hour ago. He was driving a 442. Al, put in a call to the fixer. Caroline stepped between them. No, going after him will only make things worse. Mickey exhaled. Okay, for now. But listen, Ben is down at the station. You follow my truck. Ben sat in the corner of a rear cell reading the newspaper and sipping something from a blue speckled metal cup. He gazed over the paper as the sergeant jingled his keys. Then he stood and quickly met Caroline up front. She hugged him. Ben, are you okay? Oh, I'm just a little pissed off at that wannabe Detective St. Germain. Hey, Ben, Al and I will be out front. Give you two some time alone. Thanks, Mickey. He looked over at Sergeant Brewer. Any chance in getting my smoke stand? I'm working on it, Ben. I'm working on it. Wait till the night boys come on duty. We've got a wreck on the state road to deal with. By the way, Sergeant, said Caroline, your lieutenant's punk nephew has a new car. It's a 442. I know because he spent 15 minutes trying to run me off the road at the park. Brewer's brow creased. Did you get a tag? Tag? I had all I could do to keep my car on the road. Ben slid along the bars. Dan, hasn't this crap gone far enough with Marco St. Germain? Well, Vinny has friends in high places. Oh, we got friends, too, said Mickey from the side. Caroline held the bars. That little bastard is going to kill somebody. Brewer ran his lower teeth along his lip. I'll, I'll see what I can do. Ah, said Ben, waving his hand as Brewer disappeared up front. When is the arraignment and what are the charges, asked Caroline. Ben went back to his bed and sat against the cinder block wall. I'm being brought down at 9 a.m., he looked over at Mickey. Sunday morning? Sunday morning, answered Ben. Any word on Sylvester? I'll call again when I get back to the bar. Unless we can just walk out of here, said Al with a grin. Nah, Brewer ain't stupid, said Mickey. I've seen the back door. They've got it bolted shut. Ben ain't going nowhere. Ben crawled off the bed again. What concerns me has nothing to do with the charges against me. He glanced at Caroline. My niece was just harassed by that creep again. Again, when is this guy going to be stopped? Brewer walked slowly down the jail hallway. Anybody here know Hutch Henderson? Why, asked Caroline, taking a step toward him. The wreck on the state road was his taxi. Her stomach jolted when she turned to Ben. He hit the stone ledge past the mountain road. He was killed instantly. Oh, Jesus, God. Can't you see what's going on here? It was Marco. He ran Hutch off the road because Hutch knocked him down. He never forgets. No, I think he just lost control of his taxi. Yeah, right, she answered, folding her arms. Brewer's face tightened and he headed back up front. Mickey stood with his hands in his pockets. He spoke in a low voice as he approached the cell. You people know what we have to do. Ben walked up to Mickey. Then do it, goddammit. Make the call to Philly. Caroline grabbed his arm. That's murder, Ben. Will you just tell that to Hutch? I say kill before you are killed. Just make him stop. 
Mickey stared at her and his lips hardly moved. St. Germain will never stop. Don't you understand that now, Caroline? Until either you or Ben get killed, that son of a bitch needs to die. This afternoon, when the 442 is on your tail, do you think he cares whether you or Hutch went off the road, Caroline? Asked Mickey. You listen to me. I was 17 years old when we landed at Iwo Jima. Before I went in, I wondered, how could I ever kill a man? And you know what happened? I don't even know Iwo Jima. Doesn't matter. When those Japs blew my buddy Rick to smithereens, when they started firing on me, that's when I knew. That's when I knew, Caroline, it was either them or me. I killed, yeah, I killed, and I'm standing here in front of you telling you. I say we make the call and remove the tumor. Well, I won't be a part of it, she said, and again folding her arms over her coat. Make the call, Mickey, said Ben. Caroline turned and stared down the hallway. Then he modulated his voice. Make the call, Mickey. The River of Fate by Robert P. Fitton. Chapter 22, 2.40 p.m., December 15, 1968. A stocky little man with silver hair and a navy pinstripe suit propped his briefcase up on the courthouse table. A few well-crafted sentences and a single document presented to the judge had been out on bail by noon and a court date of January 10th. As Ben headed to Muldoon's, Caroline drove up to Greg's house. Somehow she needed to convince him that she had made up the story about coming back to 1968. Greg's red supersport sat along the driveway adjacent to the blue three-decker. She looped back to the high school hill. The empty school grounds and the deep shadows gave the huge yellow brick school a desolate, almost eerie appearance. She turned into the gymnasium parking lot and once again she focused on the gym. Thoughts of the accident prompted her to circle the parking lot perimeter and head back toward Greg's apartment again. This time she turned into the dirt driveway, but her heart pounded. She crossed the frozen lawn and climbed the porch steps. Greg needed to be convinced that she had told him a stream of nonsense back at the park. She opened the lower door and trudged up the dusty stairway to the second floor. As she knocked on the door, she feared rejection and hoped Greg would see her again. The door opened. Margaret's icy eyes greeted her. Her stern voice shook Caroline. Greg is not here, she said, staring at the pearl ring. But Mrs. Provost, his car, Greg has gone out with friends, Caroline, out with his high school friends. Mrs. Provost, I think Greg may have misunderstood what I was saying yesterday. No doubt. That sometimes happens with a large age difference, or maybe you just need help. Help? Help, yes, help for your troubles, someone to talk to. Well, that's absurd. Caroline peeked inside the apartment. What about Tom? I want to talk with Tom. Tom is sleeping on the couch. Now go out with someone of your own age. My own age? What's the matter with you, anyway? Don't you understand? Greg loves me. Tom grumbled on the couch, and then he staggered across the room. He pursed his lips when he saw Caroline. You. Tom, I need to see Greg. Tom lifted his finger. Listen, you stay the hell away from my boy. His whole life is before him. The people from California are coming up here, and I don't need you running around telling him he's going to be hurt. But Tom. Just let me talk to him. There's been a massive misunderstanding. No misunderstanding. I'm sorry, Caroline, but I will have to ask you to stay away from my son. And don't be coming around the house anymore. Greg's not going to spend his life stuck in this town. If I could just talk. Don't call. Don't come back. Goodbye. He closed the door and the deadbolt clicked. Caroline remained at the top of the stairs, baffled and saddened. She stared at the scuffed varnished door. Then she headed down the staircase and fully regretted having said anything to Greg. Not able to communicate with him would certainly affect what happened on Friday afternoon. She opened the bottom door and looked out over to the cemetery, praying that her actions would not be the cause of Greg's accident and the ruin of his basketball career. 5.16 p.m. 
December 15, 1968. Caroline patrolled the Reedsville streets as darkness settled over the town. The cold weather and the lack of snowfall stiffened her resolve. She searched for Greg under the draped colored lights downtown and stopped at the curb to peer at Binghamton's Christmas displays. The empty restaurant booths inside the store's huge glass windows were as vacant as the relationship built with Greg over the past few months. The analog clock hands had just passed 8 o'clock at night. She needed a strong cup of coffee and turned into the donut shop parking lot. As she looked out the side window, the maroon 442 with Marco behind the wheel spun a huge circle of burning rubber across the asphalt. The car hovered and the powerful engine idled loudly. To her horror, Greg peeked out the back window. Before she could get out of the car, Marco raced the engine and the tires traced a black streak onto the asphalt. She screamed and banged the steering wheel several times. No, no, this was not supposed to happen. 8.43 p.m., December 15, 1968. She scrambled up the Canterbury apartment stairs and unlocked the door. Ben's laughter spread into the hall. <laughs> and he sat on the sofa and pointed at the black and white TV. Then he looked up briefly and laughed again. Rich Little, he's doing Jack Benny. Now he's doing Sullivan. Come in here, Caroline. God, this is funny. He turned as she stood motionless in the kitchenette. What's the matter? It's all my fault, Ben. Ben stood and walked up to her. What's your fault? Greg spent his whole life disciplined as an athlete, and now he's out with Marco. How can that be? asked Ben. He moved her to the front room. He's with Marco now? What a damn mess this is, Ben. I may have caused the accident. Well, I need to call Mickey. They have a guy from Philly putting a hit on St. Germain. She slowly dragged her fingers back through her hair. Is that what this is all about? Come all the way back here to cause Greg's death all over again? We don't know that, said Ben from the phone. Caroline looked up with it and extended her arms. Are you happy, you sick old hag? Don't upset her. Ben pulled the receiver to his ear. It's Ben. Put Mickey on. He what? Okay. What's the matter, she asked. Mickey went home. Ben dialed another number. Don't worry. Mickey will call off the Philly guy. Ben, Greg hates Marco St. Germain. This makes no sense. I knew I shouldn't have listened to you, Ben. What did I do? You told me to tell him everything. Well, I thought he'd listen. I'm sorry. Mickey's sharp voice buzzed in the receiver. Mick, we have to call off that Philly hit. No. Greg is driving around and hanging out with St. Germain. Again, Mickey's voice sunk to a whisper. Then we have to get word to him. Greg is at risk, okay? Okay. He hung up the phone and then she shook her head. I told you not to contact these people. And let me guess now, you can't call them off. Well, Mickey has no way to call the guy. He stays in hotels and YMCA rooms. Well, this is insane. The whole thing is insane. No, wait. Friday is the important time. We just stopped the accident. That's what we're here for. Well, we don't even know that now because it's all screwed up, Ben. Talk to Greg. Get him away from the school on Friday before the game starts. He won't listen to me now. We have to get him out to the car. Get him inside, and I'll take him to Alaska if I have to. Just away from that school and that stupid game. Then we're home free. No, no. Marco has him now. Marco is evil, Ben. You know it, and I know it. Never mind, Marco. I'll take care of Marco. The River of Fate by Robert P. Fitton Chapter 23 7.17 p.m. December 18, 1968 By Wednesday night, the 18th of December, Caroline had not seen Greg around Reedsville or in the store. Getting Greg away from Friday's game would prove extremely difficult. Distraught, she walked cautiously into Binghamton's Main Street restaurant. She checked each booth and then surveyed the street. The snow sprinkling under the streetlight's glow mesmerized her as she sipped the lukewarm, bitter coffee. Christmas music drifted into the restaurant from the neatly decorated store and brought back the sadness of the last holiday season in Chicago. 
Sharpers passed on the sidewalk as she tapped her fingers against the coffee cup. Sleep deprivation and a knotted stomach muddled her thoughts. As she lifted her coffee cup, Marco St. Germain emerged like an apparition within the falling snow. He pressed his face against the window, blowing fog on the glass. She choked and dropped the cup, spilling the coffee in the saucer as she slid out of the booth. Marco had already entered the store and had planked himself in a muddy snow puddle at the restaurant's entrance. Snowflakes were not yet melted on his leather coat. Going so soon, lovely lady? I am leaving, Marco. She tried to pass, but he grabbed her arm and squeezed tightly. If I were you, I'd be a nice little girl and sit back down. He nuzzled against her sweater, twisted her arm, and led her back into the restaurant. You ran Hutch Henderson's taxi off the state road, didn't you? He squeezed her arm tighter. Dream on. Let me go, or I'll... Oh, you'll what? Why is Greg hanging around with the likes of you? He smiled that same cunning yearbook smile as he stuffed her into the booth. Gregory told me all about you, lovely lady. Liar. He raised his dark eyebrows. Telling him you were from the future? It was a joke. I took it too far. Marco bared his stained teeth. Oh, is that right? Who are you, lovely lady? I'm calling Mr. Fine. As she tried to stand, he slammed her hand against the tabletop, snapping her finger. I can hurt or I can help. He told me what you did for him. I can show you a real good time. Greg is an amateur compared to me. Get away from me! He smiled as he leaned toward her. So Greg is going to have an accident, is he? When does that happen? I don't know what you're talking about, she said with moistened eyes. Her voice shook and Marco's eyes lit up. Oh, yes, you do. You may think I'm a little strange. Maybe I am. I'm not inhibited like everyone else in this town. I think you came back here the way you said. You and the old man just showing up here. And you know what? I should thank you. I have a whole stash of stolen pumpkins across the river. But it seems as though I won't be chucking any pumpkins out any car window, Caroline. I won't be killing some kid hitchhiking, Caroline. And I won't be going to jail. Caroline, no one knew about those pumpkins. So now you have to deal with me, lovely lady. And I think you really came back here for me. Shut up. He stood, but he lunged upward and pinched her arm. His upper lip curled over his flushed face. No, you shut up. It's a matter of time, Caroline. A matter of time before I get what I really want. You'll be hearing from me. He released his grip, and then she held her bruised arm. As several people looked on, Marco bolted from the restaurant. Once he stepped outside, she rushed across the sales floor and into the ladies' room. She backed up against the tiled wall. Maybe he would come back in the store. In the mirror, she saw the redness, his finger marks, impressed into her skin. She pounded the soap dispenser and flushed several handfuls of soap across her arms, scrubbing away any trace of his seamy residue. As the outside door opened, she jumped, splashing the soap and water on the mirror. A slender, red-haired lady gawked at her as she hurried back outside. She managed to compose herself and return to the cosmetics department, but Marco's intimidation left her frazzled. For two hours, her hands shook, and her skin never warmed. Later, she feared seeing Marco in the parking lot as she stepped toward the shoe department's rear entrance. Instead, Greg in his navy suit and crimson tie, held at least a dozen long-stemmed roses. As she hurried, Marco's firm grip seemed to press her wrist. She wanted to tell Greg about the restaurant threats, but feared more recrimination. Greg. He placed the roses in her arms. I'm sorry, Lina. I did some stupid things. It's my fault for what I said. I don't know why I reacted the way I did. Whether you're joking or serious, it's no big deal. I saw that when I was with Marco. Listen, I'm not hanging around him anymore. Well, good. She straightened his silk tie. They shuffled toward the door. You, my friend, are all decked out tonight. Why did you win the Kentucky Derby, Caroline? Asked the bald-headed Mr. Fine. Well, I guess I won all the roses. Fine nodded and waved as they stepped into the icy air. 
the snow having abated. She looked around the lot. My car is getting a tune-up. Tom dropped me off. Listen, I have an idea. Why don't we walk down Main Street, Reedsville, Pennsylvania? What do you say? She looked around again. Okay. He gently deposited the roses in Ben's car and took her hand. They traversed the snow-dusted lot and paused at the lighted wood-framed nativity scene at the church across the street. Ahead, almost disguised in a snow cover, Main Street appeared as if it were fifty years in the past. Only a few cars rolled over the packed snow as they traveled arm-in-arm down the sidewalk. Caroline remained mystified by his return. Adorned with Christmas decorations that erased Chicago's bitter memory. Amid the strings of draped colored lights, hidden speakers boomed out holiday melodies down the street. A tiny electric train looped around the countryside, passing through mountain tunnels and over bridges of a make-believe world inside Binghamton's main window. Greg looked at her reflection. They continued walking for nearly an hour, but she never mentioned Marco or the future. Her only goal concerned getting him out of Revere High School at 4.31 Friday afternoon. Later in the car, she suggested they meet earlier that afternoon. Greg told her he needed to pick up his car after school. As she pulled into his driveway, he agreed to meet her at the lobby doors just before the game. Okay, I have to get some extra shooting in before the game anyways. I've been ice cold from the outside lately. I may start to drive toward the basket more. Well, don't do that. Why not? Hopefully your outside shooting will improve. Oh, it will. These things go in cycles. Plus, I don't want to let down my guard just because of this UCLA thing. California, here I come. Thank you for the roses, Greg. I'm very proud of you. Sweet dreams. She kissed his forehead and he broke off a rose stem. He held the rose precariously in his hand and embraced her one final time. Sweet dreams, Lina. He carefully trekked across the snow, leaving a footprint trail back to the stairs before giving her a quick salute. Then he went inside. Caroline backed out of the frozen driveway. The car headlights swung across the bleak snow-covered cemetery and cut deep shadows behind the gravestones. She drove slowly back to Canterbury Street with a new resolve. Once she met him in the lobby, she could get him away and prevent the accident. 9.40 p.m., December 18, 1968. Ben erupted when he heard what Marco had done to her at the store restaurant. He shut off the TV and stormed around the apartment, cursed Marco, and blamed him for everything. He removed his revolver from the desk drawer and waved the gun through the air as he yelled. I'll kill the bastard. I will, Caroline. I'll kill him. She tried to steady her uncle. But Ben, listen. We have less than 48 hours. I just met Greg. Ben lowered the gun slowly and tucked it in his pocket. Well, what did he say about St. Germain? Never mind that. Greg is picking up his car on Friday, and then he'll meet me before the game. He's not with Marco anymore. Well, good work. Ben lit a camel and blew out the smoke. I'm calling Mickey again. I don't need that SOB threatening you like he did tonight. We forget about Marco. You said it yourself. As long as we stop the accident, and it looks as though we will, Marco is irrelevant now. Ben nodded and smiled. Well, I guess you're right. It's just that the guy has gotten under my skin. Come on, let's have a snack before we turn in. They went to the kitchenette where she had placed the roses in a large glass pitcher. She poured the cold milk into frosted glasses and brought over oatmeal cookies on a plate. For a few minutes, they were able to talk about other things. Saturday, they launched Apollo 8. It was the first spacecraft piloted by men to leave Earth's gravity and be taken in by another body, the moon. Did you bet on that one too, Ben? She asked with a grin. I got enough problems with that creep's uncle. Ben had a faraway look again. Amy and I listened to Frank Borman reading from Genesis. I want to go back and see her just one more time, Caroline. Most people don't get that chance. Tell me about it. Once we prevent the accident, I want, to f I want to fly to Michigan. Are you sure, Ben? He pressed his lips and his eyes were glassy. Just one more time. Caroline, still taken aback by Greg's exquisite appearance, heard something out front. Ben did not sense the sound at first, but Caroline jogged to the window and pulled back the curtains. Marco's maroon 442 
swept past the apartment and headed to the corner. She closed her eyes and clenched her fists. My God, Ben, why doesn't he just leave me alone? Ben said nothing as he disappeared into his bedroom, returning seconds later with a leather shoulder strap. He tucked the gun in the strap. He will leave you alone. What's his problem? He won't have a problem when I get through with him. Ben secured the strap and they returned to the window. She looked down Canterbury Street, but Marco had driven away. This is how the guy gets his kicks, Caroline. Making other people sweat. Doors are unlocked, Ben. She sprinted across the room and checked and rechecked the locks, her hands tense as she faced Ben. He drew his gun like a cowboy in a western movie as he sat in a rocking chair at the window. Thirty-six hours before the accident and now this. Damn him. Listen, we're going to do what we came here to do, Caroline. I'll do whatever I have to do in order to keep Greg off that court. And then he can face the rest of his life. The River of Fate by Robert P. Fitton Chapter 24 On Thursday with the day off, she pretended not to be affected by the turmoil around her and did some shopping at Binghamton's, but her eyes were fixed on the elevator clock. During lunch, Greg had telephoned from the school, but his sedate manner contrasted with the developing events. He had practiced later that afternoon and some studying that evening. Tomorrow, he expected to be back from the garage with his car and in the gym lobby by 4 p.m. She told him she loved him and hung up, but in her mind, the old woman's words about the forces of fate converging skipped and repeated like a worn vinyl record. Everything now converged on Friday afternoon, with Greg's future at the pivotal point, and Caroline did not know if she could alter the fragile fabric of time. 2.15 p.m., December 19, 1968. As an outlet for her surging emotions, Caroline decided to prepare a nice meal. She and Ben stopped at the RPM, bought the usual week's groceries, but she added a large roast, potatoes, vegetables, and a chocolate cake mix into the shopping cart. At the apartment, Ben insisted on bringing the bags up from the car, and she pulled the pots and pans from under the countertop. The red frame wall clock's black minute hand repeatedly swept around the clock face. In less than 24 hours, Greg's life would be changed forever. She put the copper kettle on the gas burner, but she realized Ben had not come in from the car. The delay made her uneasy. She stepped to the rear window and gazed across the dimly lit backyard. The car door remained open, the inside light on, but she did not see him. Finally, she heard him trudge up the stairs. Ben, are you going to stay out there all night? It's freezing out there. She went back to the old white stove and adjusted the kettle on the burner. Smiling, she sidestepped to the back door, turned the knob, and pulled the door open. Marco St. Germain stood alone at the top of the staircase. Greetings, lovely lady. She screamed and thrust her hands against the old wooden door, but Marco swung his boot between the door and the frame. With his other boot, he kicked the door, shaking the glass. She retreated across the rug, but he crashed in, slammed the door, and secured the lock. What have you done with Ben? The old man is preoccupied, lovely lady. He slithered toward her. She thought about grabbing the kettle, but he stood between her and the stove. If you have hurt him, I'll kill you. Now, now, lovely lady, he said, rubbing his index fingers together as he came closer. We don't need that kind of talk. She glanced at the flaring blue gas flames under the copper kettle, but she feared making a move. Marco had spotted Greg's yearbook on the coffee table. Now, isn't this interesting? He opened the book and read what Greg's friends had penned inside the front cover. Where is Ben? This book is from the future. I have nothing to say to you. Where's my uncle? Shut up. He threw the book across the room and it bounced off the back door. The water boiled inside the kettle as he slowly stepped toward her. Please don't hurt me. He unzipped his leather coat and tossed it on the sofa. His lustful eyes followed her body contours as she inched back toward the stove. I'm not a greedy man, lovely lady. I'm not asking for much. Just you. All right, all right, I'll, I'll do anything you want. 
His aggressive eyes possessed a primitive fury. Sliding along the stove, she moved her hand upward and felt the encroaching burner heat as she firmly grasped the kettle's wooden handle. You won't regret it, baby. Caroline squeezed the handle, lifting it away from the stove. But Marco, quick to realize her attack, kicked the kettle from her hand. Stunned, she darted toward the sofa. Marco shut off the flames and laughed. Bad move, lovely lady. He lunged at her and ripped her blouse at the arm. I don't like people who lie to me, especially people from faraway places. He dug his dirty fingernails into her arm and yanked her closer. She struggled, but she could not overcome his superior strength. As he kissed her, she tasted stale beer on his chapped lips, and his beard scraped her face. His clothing smelled of cigarettes. You bastard, I'll kill you! <laughs> you in what army? He chuckled and pawed at her breasts. She tried to push him away. Stop it! You want it. You know you want it. He fully threw his arms around her. Caroline spit at him for a moment, his grip lessened. But this time he slapped her face repeatedly, fell back, her cheeks stinging as she rolled across the floor. He reached for her ankles, clutching tightly, and flipped her body over. Caroline tried pushing him back, but he crawled on top and pinned her to the floor. Ben! Ben! Help me! The old man can't help you now. She lifted her head and sunk her incisors into his hairy arm. He recoiled, enough time for her to roll, and he cursed her as she dove into the bedroom. She leaped upward and pushed in the door's tiny button lock, but he instantly kicked the wood panels. She could leap out the window. With a 20-foot drop to the sidewalk, she risked breaking her leg or worse. As she hesitated, Marco's boot crashed through the veneer. She sprinted to the window, turned the brass latch as the entire door ripped from its hinges and exploded onto the floor. The cold air rushed inside as she pushed the window upward. But Marco, like an animal, burst from the cage, stormed across the room, taking her from behind, and whacked her head with his back hand. He lifted her into the air, violently hurling her body onto the bed. He stood near the edge and laughed. Caroline backed up against the headboard. No! I won't do this. He unzipped his pants as she scanned the room for a weapon, anything that might stop him. She reached for the brass lamp behind her, grabbed the base and set the lamp flying. He easily dodged the projectile, and the lamp bounced off the wall, the bulb smashed onto the hardwood floor. You're going to need more than that lamp, Caroline. He unbuckled his belt and slowly pulled it through the loops. She slid across the mattress, but he dove onto the bed, landing on his knees, and he attempted to secure the belt around her wrists. She kicked his side and rolled toward the window. He retracted the belt and snapped it across her back as she hit the floor. The skin across her back stung against the cold wood as he smashed his fist into her face. So I killed Greg in 1992, did I? And you came back to change all that and to stop his accident. Well, Greg will have that accident. She staggered, dazed from the blow. No, Marco, no. Except I won't kill Kiefer. No jail time. Let me show my appreciation, lovely lady. Please, no, you'll love it. I don't want you. He pinned her against the wallpaper. Then he plunged his sandpaper hands under her blouse and ripped it open. She crashed against a brass lamp on the end table, but clutched the shade. With a single chop, she sent the brass base into his jaw. He lurched forward, bleeding as he held his cheek. Caroline leapfrogged across the room. He yelled from behind as Ben, holding out his gun, opened the back door. His puffy hair and forehead were pasted with splattered, dripping blood. He spoke in a raspy, weakened tone as he shuffled forward. Caroline, get the hell out of here. She gasped at his gaping wound in his left temple. Ben, my God! Now! Marco froze in the bedroom doorway. Ben waved his gun and she ran back to the stairs. Marco taunted her uncle as she moved downward. Even though he had a gun, Ben could bleed to death. Once outside, she ran along the sandy Canterbury, Canterbury Street sidewalk and then sprinted to the convenience store across the street. As she slipped along the icy road, she heard muffled gunshots from the second floor. 
Marco St. Germain stood motionless in the window with Ben's gun in his hand. For an instant they locked eyes and then he disappeared. No! Holding her torn blouse, she crashed into the store and told the lady behind the glass counter of the emergency. On the back phone, she dialed the police number listed in the desk telephone book. The dispatcher called his cruises on the open channel and listened in detail to Caroline's account. Then he set out a description of Marco's 442. The first sirens echoed down Canterbury Street just as she got off the phone. Blue and red lights flashed over the buildings and reflected off the moistened pavement. Despite the road being blocked, she stomped back to the apartment building steps. One of the policemen raced down the sidewalk and warned her to stay back, but she moved up the stairs. A plainclothes officer at the top of the stairs waved her through when he learned of her relationship to Ben. With no sign of Marco or Ben, the freaky silence in the apartment scared her. A deep red blood pool formed a spotted trail across the green kitchenette linoleum to the rear stairs. Where is he? Where's my uncle? Well, we don't know said another officer. I have guys out back, said the bald-headed plainclothes cop. Please don't be dead, Ben. Please don't be dead. More police bounded up the rear stairs and reported no sign of Marco or Ben in the building or the yard. But the blood drippings led to an elongated, deep crimson sidewalk stain. The young cop helped Caroline to one of the kitchen chairs, and she held her head in her hands. First, he tried to rape me. My uncle, he came in with a gun. He had been beaten, and he told me to leave, and I went outside. That's when I heard the shot, and now you say the blood leads down to the sidewalk. You're going to have to take yourself out of this, Gil, said one of the cops. The plain clothesman just seemed upset and motioned his guy back. He pinched the bridge of his nose, and his beady eyes were teary. Just shut up. We have to find him first. Just because he's your nephew. His nephew, asked Caroline, immersed in the blue and red flashing light. So, you're Lieutenant St. Germain. Get her the hell out of here. No, you can't do this. And he's right. You can't stay on this case because that son of a bitch is your nephew. I can do anything I want, lady. He lit a cigarette and he vanished down the front stairs. She ran over to the open door. I love my uncle. You can't do this. The other policeman ordered her quickly to pack her things. She requested they bring her to Muldoon's. In disbelief, she walked across the living room, staring at Ben's blood on the vinyl. She grabbed the yearbook and held it against her chest as she cried silently down the stairs to the cruiser. There are unforeseen circumstances from traveling back in time changes, if you will, in the timeline. Next week we'll see more curveballs as we reach the dramatic conclusion of the River of Fate. This is Robert P. Fitton wondering, where will this all land? Or will it? All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.